It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Christine, and I'd like to introduce you to the True Crime Files podcast, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on mysterious disappearances and unsolved murders. Every two weeks, we'll be releasing an episode that'll help you get to know a case really well without having to invest a lot of your time. Derived from the articles upon the True Crime Files website, you'll find that our show covers a diversity of victims and perspectives. You'll probably also notice that our episodes are narrated by Scott Fuller from the Frozen Truth and Status Pending Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to the True Crime Files today so that you never miss an episode. Thanks so much for listening, being a part of our true crime community, and helping to shine a light on cases that might otherwise be overlooked or underreported.
This podcast includes topics such as violence, sex and mental illness. If this might disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. It's okay. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected with personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis centre, emergency services or national hotline. In the US, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 988 or 800-273-8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. I try to avoid mentioning current events too heavily, especially in the introductions to each episode, because I don't know about you, but I binge. So I'm not up to date on some of my very favorite podcasts. I wait until I can listen to a whole bunch at a time. So with this one, I thought, well, there's a way to introduce this that refers to specific crime-related current events. And I don't know if I want to do that. I want to keep it more vague. And then I remembered, oh, right, I live in the USA. There are always crime-related events. There's always violence. There's always too many people being treated like numbers in the prison industrial complex. So just go ahead and apply this following conversation to whatever's going on in the news right now, because I'm sure it qualifies. I'm talking with Joni Johnston, who is another forensic psychologist. And that's always super fun because we just get each other. We just know. And so we talk about what is it like working inside a prison? What is it like dealing with people who assume you're constantly evaluating them? What's the difference between forensic psychology and profiling? We also do talk about things like suicide, so if that's a rough topic for you, consider this an extra disclaimer. But otherwise, are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. I'm Dr. Joni Johnston. I am a forensic psychologist and private investigator, and I work primarily with offenders um, in the courtroom. So I have told people more than once what a forensic psychologist is and does, but you do it. Do my work for me. Tell people, because a lot of people, I don't know if it happens for you, but a lot of people for me are like, oh, that sounds cool. And I'm like, well, not cool. That's not the word I would use. Yeah, it's, that is 
the whole cool thing, it, it really has a different tone, doesn't it? Depending upon how we're, how we're thinking of it, for sure. A forensic psychology, forensic is really has to do with the law. And so when you're talking about forensic psychology, you're talking about anywhere where psychology is used to make some kind of legal decision. So it can be whether this person's legally insane. It can be whether a person's competent to stand trial. Um, it can be anything that anything where there's a legal question and psychology helps to answer that question. Um, that's what forensic psychology is. And it's a lot of waiting. A lot of waiting. Um you know, a lot of school work <laughs> that kind of go, that kind of goes into it. Um, a lot of work in different settings, depending on how where you want to be. It can be in a courtroom, it can be in a corporation, it can be in a psychiatric hospital. I mean, there's a lot of different ways you can be a forensic psychologist. Um, I tend to focus on the criminal arena. That's just where I'm kind of most interested in. So, um, yeah, it's it's really pretty broad. When you think about it, you know, when you think about all the different legal questions that we can have, um, it, it's 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 pretty interesting to think about that. Um, you know, we tend to think of it, I think, a lot of times in the courtroom. Um, but but like I said, it's a lot more broad than that, really. Um, it can be, you know, whether when somebody has a car accident, do they have post-traumatic stress disorder? That's a legal question, you know, or again, um, in the criminal arena, testifying about, you know, lying or eyewitness testimony. I mean, there's, it's just such a broad way of looking at things from a psychology standpoint. So I'm not going to ask you where you live specifically. I know that you live in a different part of the country than I do. But so I've worked in both New Hampshire and Massachusetts. And one of the fun, question mark, fun things about New Hampshire is that I was an employee of the state, not a sort of uh, hired gun. I guess you could say, like, I wasn't hired by the prosecution. I wasn't hired by the defense. I was hired by the state, which gave me the leeway to find the answers to the same questions you're talking about, competency, uh, diagnosis, best place for someone to be housed after adjudication, things like that. And I didn't have uh, I didn't have a dog in the race. You know, I could just kind of come up with what I felt was the right answer. And if they didn't agree with me, my feelings didn't get hurt. The state that you are in, do you, are you always on one side or the other? Or are you uh, an agent of the state as well? Almost always. Um, unfortunately, it's, you know, defense or or prosecution. I think what you're describing, I mean, yes, there are situations where the courts will assign me to evaluate a certain person, for example. I think a lot of times um, that's relatively rare. You know, it, most of the time it is a defense or prosecution. And I think there are some real drawbacks to that. And I think you look at like in Europe, in, um, Europe, for example, almost everything is neutrally um, you know, given, you know, it's, it's the court is the one who makes these assignments. And so, you know, we, we all know how, um, you know, depending upon whether you're, you know, whether you're the person, you're the, the dog you have in a fight is the prosecution or the defense. It's just almost impossible for that not to get all, you know, it got all blurry. Um, you know, if you're being hired to do something, then you have an incentive, right, for that to, you know, for that to work out. 
So I think that really is is something that the legal system here in the United States, for the most part, is um, you know, is is just much more biased, you know, whether because because there is this kind of almost like a financial motive, right? You know, whether this person's for the prosecution or for the defense, and then there's again whether the person's going to you know kind of win or not. There's that competition that you don't see in the European judicial system, um, and like you said, it sounds like you're um, in your state that there's more of an opportunity. To kind of say, okay, these were assi- you know, these are assigned, um, you know, as opposed to, like I said, as opposed to, or, or for the courts to assign you, it, it does make things so much cleaner than, like we said, whether oh, whether your prosecution or your defense. I mean, there are supposed to be different ways that you balance that out in terms of, well, how many times have you testified for the prosecution? How many times have you testified for the defense? I mean, there's all these ways of trying to measure is this person being objective or not, but it's much more difficult. When you have this adversarial system, I understand the reasoning being, okay, everybody's entitled to the best defense or, or offense, if you want to talk about the prosecution, uh, you know, the, the best defense or offense possible. But look at the downside of that. We know that's not true, right? Everybody doesn't get the best defense possible, you know, depending on how much money you have. So that right there, I think, is a false, you know, kind of a false idea. And you could make the argument that, as a matter of fact, because of our judicial system, whether you have money or not, makes it uh, much less fair for people because you can afford to hire the best attorney. Whereas in France, you're just assigned the prosecutor or you're just, you know, assigned a defendant. Uh, well, and, and that's that's the things that I like. I I sat there through trials where there were three psychologists total, where there was somebody hired for the by the prosecution, someone hired by the defense, and then I came in. And I would sit there and watch the back and forth that would go about how biased are you? And did you get the outcome you want? And I, I remember thinking like, I don't want to waste my time with that kind of, I, I, the word defensiveness is coming to mind, but I don't mean in, in, a, in an adversarial sense. I mean, just, I don't want to have to tell people, wait, no, 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 I'm, I'm not a jerk about this. I, I'm finding what I'm finding just because that's what I'm finding, you know, and that's, there's something very lucky, I think, to me about that. Like, I just, I happened to be in New England when I started working. Uh-huh. And, and so it's not like I sought it out. I did seek out, so I have a, I have a, a different question for you. Brains all over the place. It's been a weekend. So we're going to roll with it. Um, are you in a death penalty state? Um, well, it's so arbitrary, almost, it seems like. I mean, um, you know, just in California has kind of gone all away around the band with that, where it's like, yes, in, in theory, for example, California is a death penalty state, but our governor has put a moratorium on death penalties for at least eight years and has made the, the comment that he, that as long as he is governor, there will not be any death penalties that will be, you know, kind of given out. So I think it kind of depends upon what does that mean? You know, can you get the death penalty in California? Yes, you can. Can you carry out the death penalty in California? No, you can't. So what is it like in your state, Kate? We both in New Hampshire and in Massachusetts, they are not death penalty states. There are there are federal facilities in Massachusetts, but I never worked at the federal facility. And that was a, a strong determinant for me when I just decided to work in the prisons system specifically uh-huh. that I didn't want because one comp- form of competency that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with 
is that you have to be competent to be executed. Uh -huh. And mm -hmm. that was a part of the job that I decided early on I was not going to do mm -hmm. because that felt like too much weight and, and too many ethical questions that I didn't feel able to grapple with mm -hmm. on my own. And so I just decided I'm not going to get involved in any death penalty you know competency is this person competent to know we're killing him when we're killing him that was effectively the question i was going to be asked and and friends of mine did that and i remember thinking like you have a stronger constitution than i do because i just there's so many things to parse out mm -hmm. about that piece of it that i just couldn't get involved and the closest it came is there there was one case that I was asked to consult on, but I wasn't the lead psychologist in the case um, that may have become a federal death penalty case. And luckily, they decided for me, they decided we're not going to go that route. Mm -hmm. And so I never I never had to really unpack that. But that's a tough one. And I think that's one that like I forget exists and certainly the average person on the street forgets that mm -hmm. you, you know, if, if you, I, I've heard, I've had people say to me before, you know, if I was ever on death row, I'd just stop taking all my meds and I'd go into some sort of, you know, permanent psychotic state and I wouldn't know what was going on and that would be fine. And I'd be like, well, <laughs> you could do that for a while, mm -hmm. but they can force you to take medication to restore you to sanity long enough for you to know that you're about to be executed. And that's rough. Like that's a rough thing to grapple with. Has that been decided for sure? I mean, it probably has. I know in Texas, there was a huge battle and I don't know the outcome of that because there was the one inmate who, um, whenever you took him off his psychotropic medication, he became psychotic and his attorney was fighting tooth and nail for him to stay off of his medication. Um, and so I never knew, maybe you do have more information. I never knew kind of what the outcome of that was because of the forceful medication issue. And, you know, can you make somebody take medication just to be well enough that you execute them? So I remember, absolutely remember that. But um, there's also, there's been cases, I believe in Alabama and at least one other state, I want to say Ohio, but I'm not positive off the top of my head but there's been at least three states where they have imposed through injections to force people to take antipsychotics at least long enough to be informed that they were being executed because there's a whole process there's a whole yeah. sort of yep. pomp and circumstance to it right. and mm -hmm. sometimes they are allowed then to go back off the medication to be led into the death chamber and other times they're effectively mandated to remain as sane as chemistry can make them. I mean, I can't even get my head around that when you, when you think about it. I mean, it's not just like the, it just seems like the craziest thing in the world in a way to think about, you know, I don't know that I have the answer, but it's like, like we were saying, I mean, it just seems like the amount of money it takes, um, you know, to execute somebody. And then this whole, the whole process, of putting somebody to death and just, it just is, it's kind of mind boggling in a way separate from the, just separate, even from the philosophical questions, you know, about the death penalty, just to think about, you know, 
all the different things that have to go on and things, I mean, things like that. I, I, something I've never even really thought about, like I said, in in Texas, because as we all know, I think it probably is the, you know, is the the state that is more likely to do it. Texas or Florida, right? Take your pick. Right. Yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, so that's interesting that you're saying that it really, you know, that that's, that that's been a real thing, you know, that they've actually, you know, evaluated people to see if they're competent to be executed. And I don't know how, when the most recent one is, because I kind of stopped, it stopped being relevant for me and I only have so many functioning yeah. neurons at a time. Um, this would have been in the late nineties. Yeah. When yeah. I was, when I was sort of finishing school and deciding like, where am I going to move from here? And I just decided, you know what, I, I can't grapple with this. And, and I've always answered, you know, if, if people ask me, are you, for the death penalty, my answer has always been no, because it's too expensive. Yeah, yeah. Like, forget the rest. Like, I, I just don't, I, I don't do well with the philosophical and semi-religious arguments that, that get involved. And for me, it's more about just, do you understand how expensive it is right. every day to keep someone on death row? That's an easy one. It is. You're right. That's an, it's an easy fallback position. And it's true just the expense that goes into it with the appeals and all this stuff, it just becomes kind of mind boggling. Like we're saying, just all the different things that are that re required or that people do and that kind of stuff. It's just insane. But, oh yeah. There's some grand it's, topics there. It's <laughs> a lot. It's a lot. So yeah, it is. I'm, I feel like I'm there as, as we're talking. I'm like, <laughs> I know. I, <laughs> I can see you and I are both talking with our hands a lot. It, it's it's yes. welcome to my world. Yes. Um, so I'm going to share a story that I told on my show before, but I think that you'll get it because I, as we spoke before I hit record, I insist on seeing offenders as human beings. And I think that that's not necessarily a, a stance that everyone assumes, you know, especially in the world of true crime, whether it is writing or whether it is in in doing podcasting or in you know practice is are these people human or do we get to call them monsters and say you know call the bad guy bad names and say he's terrible and lock him away and i started working in the prison when i was about 25 plus or minus mm -hmm. and early on they they have you do busy work just to get used to being in the prison and not a little bit freaked out by being a, a woman in a men's prison. Mm -hmm. um, this is, uh, I'm speaking about the, the New Hampshire State Prison for Men. That's, that's where I worked for several years. And so I was doing just intake stuff, mostly, you know, new, new inmates and, you know, demographics and mental health history and the like. Mm -hmm. And the, one of my first inmates that I spoke to was a guy who was approximately the size of a Mack truck, just, just a big solid dude intimidating for me because they have him come in to the room and they handcuff him to a chair and they kind of give me this half salute and they walk out and i'm like whoa who this is all he all you've done is create that chair into a weapon now because now it's attached to him you know like that's where my brain is going but i'm not you know i'm here to do a job and so i'm filling out the paperwork and you know, his name was not Joe, but let's say mm -hmm. that that was his name. And at the time, I think I was still in a very black and white mindset and a very like, 
bad people, good people mindset. Mm-hmm. And when we were done, I said to this, this man, okay, uh, we're all set. Joe, thank you for your time. And Joe looked at me and burst into tears. And I'm looking around like, oh my God, I just broke him. I just broke Joe. What did I do? Oh no. Oh no. And, and it's, and he, he kind of calms down and he says, yeah, I haven't heard my first name and nobody has said thank you to me in years. Mm-hmm. And that was such a lightning bolt to my brain about this is still a human being. This is still, he admits to doing some bad things, but there's still a human being in there and, and there's still emotion and empathy. Mm-hmm in there and 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 he still wants to be seen as valid and an important person and so that sort of rocked me early on and and i think really shaped my approach to my job mm-hmm. and so i tell that story to invite you like do you have stories like that that sort of either were unexpected for you or maybe you were smarter than i was and did expect them but still were very you know examples of hey these are these are human beings yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I do. I, I teach um, sometimes for a PhD program um, here in California and Southern California. And one of the things I tell all of my students is, you know, if you're going to be a forensic psychologist, promise me one thing. And that is that you will spend some of, some of your time working with victims and you will spend some of your time working with offenders because until you do both, it's impossible, in my opinion, to get that sense of we are all human beings. I started out working with victims and particularly with children who've been sexually abused and physically abused and court ordered the families have been court ordered a treatment. And so I saw a lot of trauma that was firsthand. I mean, it was pretty fresh and it was just traumatizing for me. It really was. I mean, I used to get in the car after work sometimes and cry all the way home um, because I was really young when I finished my doctorate and I don't know why I was in, he thought I was in some kind of a race for something. I don't know what it was, but um, I never won, whatever it was, but, um, but I started it. And, um, and so I would see these kids and these families and it was just so see that pain was so difficult for me. And I remember at one point thinking after seeing this little four-year-old who was kind of simulating sex, like kind of acting out what he had seen. And it was just this really difficult family situation. And, I mean, I can remember thinking to myself, I could pull the switch, this is the electric chair on this perpetrator who I was not seeing. This was seeing the family Um, because I just felt such anger and helplessness and everything. And then um, I began working with offenders and began, uh, worked in our maximum security prison for a few years. And um, I think I had always, because even working with victims, I sometimes work with, with offenders and perpetrators. And so I think I saw that, you know, we're all human beings. However, you're right. I mean, when you're working with victims, it's very difficult to step out of that um, pain and have compassion, you know, for the the offender. And so I would begin working in a, a maximum security prison for a couple of years. And I, before that years, I was evaluating inmates, but it's different when you're kind of going from the outside coming in, as you know, versus when you're in there every day. And, um, Probably the second time I ever cried being, uh, you know, as a psychologist was when I spent my first day in ADSEG and um, saw these guys in these therapeutic modules. I don't know what they call them, not where you are, but it was like they're in these cages. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand the reason for that and all that, but it was just mind boggling to me and so upsetting to see human beings in these cages, um, even though I got it. But I remember having that same in a weird, weird kind of way, same kind of reaction. So I did learn pretty quickly, not just philosophically that we're all human beings and that my mom, one of my mom's favorite saying to me, which I value and love her for was, you know, Joni, don't ever forget that people are not as good as the best thing they've ever done. And they're not as bad as the worst thing they've ever done. You know, that we're all have that gray in us for the most part. And so, yeah, I mean, working um, with offenders like I do now and but working very intimately with them for a number of years uh, in terms of every day. And I know you've done that. Um, there were plenty of, of guys that I saw that I thought, man, I would be really be, would be friends with this person if the situation was different. And then there were offenders that I thought, I'm glad you're here. And I'm not anxious for you to get out anytime soon. I mean, you're scary and you have this potential for violence that I see in you, you know, or, or a lack of empathy. And so there's absolutely, it's absolutely true. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you have a ton of stories, but I learned some things so quickly, like, for example, um, you know, asking people, were you abused as a child? That was one of my questions I would ask them as part of a suicide risk assessment and all these kinds of things. It'd be like, oh, no, 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 not pretty normal childhood. Well, I learned pretty quickly that don't ask that question because what is normal, right? What is normal? The range of what people have thought of in their childhood as normal is truly horrifying sometimes. And so I learned quickly, you had to kind of go, has this ever happened to you? Has anybody ever done this? If because there sometimes was truly a lack of awareness that you have you have been abused. You have been significantly abused. And yet in your mind, no, that this was a normal part of your childhood. And it probably happened to your parents. And, you know, there's a whole multi-generational thing. So I have lots of stories of, you know, inmates and, um, you know, and, and that, I mean, it was really in some respects, I had younger kids at the time. And so I worked on the crisis unit for a while. And then I worked on the um, assessment unit, which was, kind of a unique program and where I worked, where if an offender had a mental health diagnosis and they got in trouble for some reason, then I would evaluate whether that person's mental health or mental illness had anything to do with the offense. And if it did, then I was asked to either, you know, say yes or no, because we all know people with with severe mental illnesses can just get mad like anybody else can, it has nothing to do with their symptoms or whatever. But if it did, to make recommendations about um, discipline, um, to potentially offer that as a mitigating or something that might lessen the sentence that they got or whatever, we never had the decision-making power that was obviously going to be up to custody because it was a disciplinary issue. Um, but yeah, I just saw all kinds of things and all kinds of people. And in prison, I think, is like anywhere else, any other community in a way um, where you're going to find like we, like we were saying, you're going to find people that, um, I mean, I saw amazing acts of kindness between inmates. I saw some pretty horrible things between inmates and I saw custody officers who were just amazing. And I saw some pretty sadistic custody officers. And so it was just the gamut. Yeah, I had to, I, one of the things that I had to grapple with in dealing with COs was so inmates would call each other for the most part by their last names or by a nickname uh-huh. and mm-hmm. COs would refer to the inmates by their number. Mm. And early on, I had a hard time with that because I was mm. like, 
there's not a lot of humanity left here. Can't can't you at least use their name? Mm-hmm. Can't you at least do that? And I and I finally realized at one point that no, they they can't. Some can't mm-hmm. because they're doing an inherently inhumane job. We are asking them. We're we're looking at them and saying, please take this whole ass adult and keep them in a in a concrete box and mm-hmm. don't let them out and don't banter with them and don't let them get to know you and don't empathize with them see them only as an inmate Mm -hmm. and so calling them by their number is further dehumanizing to the inmate Mm -hmm. but it's Mm -hmm. protective to the co Mm -hmm. and and i get that like i get that they kind of have to do that for their own sanity because they got to go home at night yeah yeah that's interesting because, and you know what I've, and I, I know you've probably been in different prisons, but as an evaluator, I've been lucky enough and still do go into a bunch of different prisons in California. So I've had the opportunity um, to compare to some extent different ones. And I'm, I'm amazed at how different they are because like, for example, the one that I worked in, they all called each other by their last names. Now we could never call them by their first names right? That was taboo. And nobody even called us like we could not put our first name on anything working there for our own privacy or safety or whatever. So everybody was, you know, CO so-and-so inmate Johnston, I'm making this up because that's my last name, you know, uh, you know, psychologist Johnston, whatever, you know, we, everybody used our last names, but there wasn't that. I mean, of course, inmates were tracked by their number, of course. And that was, you had, they had to have that with everything and they had to memorize it and everything, but, but no, there wasn't that necessarily that sense. No, there was plenty of like what you're saying, emotional distancing, right? I mean, there's all different ways that we can do that in any setting to kind of protect ourselves and distance ourselves from somebody else and make them not quite as much as human as we'd like them to be or whatever. There was certainly that, but there wasn't that sense of the number, but I saw that in other places. So I know it's not uncommon. Yeah. And I, I never asked in retrospect because I, for me, you know, I would work with an inmate and then not anymore. And I just learned after the first, uh, interaction that I had with the the not Joe guy to start asking, what uh-huh. would you like me to call you for the next week that we're going to work together? Yeah. Yeah. And so then I would just call them that whatever they wanted me to call them because I didn't care one way or the other. And so I it never occurred to me until after I had stopped working there and we had moved to Massachusetts and I saw things run a little bit differently down here. And then I always wondered, like, I wonder if that was policy or if it was one of those sort of unspoken aspects of culture. Yeah, I would, I would love to know that because I can see it both ways. Like you're saying that it becomes a policy and, or, or it becomes, you know, because the, you know, the flip side of that, I don't, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, um, Vicki White, Casey White case out of Alabama, the custody officer, which actually the assistant warden who uh, ran away essentially with Casey White and ended up with her committing suicide. And he's been charged with her murder and all this kind of stuff. I mean, there were situations like that, that, you know, there's that, I think it's hard to understand what a closed environment a prison is. And you think, how could somebody who's been working in, you know, a prison for years not recognize the dynamics that are going on here and you know and um on both sides 
um, because I think in that situation, I was not personally involved in that situation at all. So I'm obviously commenting on it from a very long distance, but just the things that have come out, you know, it seems like she was in a pretty vulnerable place in her life, had some, some things going on. And then, you know, this relationship started and it ended up in tragedy all the way around for everybody. Um, but you know, they're, I know they're always struggling with that. I think they're always trying to put this distance in like you're saying, whether it's a policy or rules or, and it's like you said, it's to control the environment. It's to control the inmate. Um, and it's to, you know, make sure that there aren't any boundaries that are crossed and all kinds of things. Well, and I feel like whenever it becomes, you have to have rules. I agree. Yes, there have to be rules. There have to be policies. That being said, as soon as you start to build policy and rules in place, somebody's going to find another one and break it. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You know, and so one of my coworkers in New Hampshire, when I was there, is now an inmate at that facility because he was bringing an outside prescription in and selling it to inmates. And one of the only times that you can reliably be alone in with, with someone else in the prison without being interrupted is if you're with clergy or you're with mental health. Right. And so he was a, a mental health worker of sorts. And so he was just bringing in meds and like you can't bring in a cell phone more 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 inmates have cell phones than staff had cell phones but he could bring in meds and nobody was checking on that yeah and i was there the day that he got arrested and i remember all of us looking at each other going did it did that he, oh my god that would have just been <laughs> mind-blowing it mean. really was and and me going like it never even occurred to me especially that particular staff member like it just, he didn't give off that vibe to me. And, and, and what, that occurred, what that told me was none of us, I think, are that great at picking up vibes on people if we're not looking for them. Mm-hmm. So like I'm good at sitting down with someone. I'm an excellent diagnostician. If you tell me, look at this person and diagnose them. Yeah. I'm real good at that. But I trained hard not to do that unless I've been asked to do so. So there are a lot of times, including this guy, where I just looked at him as this is a coworker. This is a colleague. Seems like a nice enough guy. I wouldn't do this thing. So of course he wouldn't either, which is a false, you know, comparison. But then I realized later, like if someone had asked me which of my coworkers was most likely to sell drugs to inmates, I wonder if I would have been right. Yeah. Because that's not what I do. I don't profile. I, I, that is such an interesting point, Kate, because I, I, I'm sure this happens to you because it happens to all psychologists. As you know, you go to a party and somebody says, and I bet you're analyzing me right now. And you kind of want to go, that is the last thing I'm doing. <laughs> you know, because for a couple of reasons, number one, we do train ourselves and I certainly do. And I know you did too. I don't want to be analyzing everybody. I want to be in a relationship with people that I am, you know, uh, at a party with or learning about or with my friends. I'm not interested in trying to analyze them because there's a certain distance that you need to be able to analyze people. And I want, I don't, I want to lose that distance when I'm in a social situation or in a relationship or whatever. But there is this assumption, I think sometimes that we always have our radar up and you're absolutely right. I mean, I work with many people in a, you know, in prison and there is absolutely nobody that I can think of 
but I wasn't sitting back and kind of going like you're saying, is there anybody in here that I think would really cross the line? Let me, let me analyze all of my coworkers and start investigating them to make sure, you know, our, I mean, we all, I think, you know, we, we, we take people the way they are for the most part until they give us a reason not to, you know, you're going to trust a coworker. He's in mental health or she's in mental health or she's in whatever in custody. We're going to think this person is like me. This person isn't going to do this kind of stuff. And it is, that would have blown my mind. I have to tell you. It, yeah. And, and it stays certain. I mean, here we are 25 years later and it still stays with me in its, in its ways of just that, that I, I, first of all, you know, I, I spend a lot of time, explaining to people the difference between profiling and forensic psychology because I don't want to do profiling. I don't want to do guesswork for a living and I don't want to be a cop. And so that's not what I do. Well, what's the difference? Uh, difference is we've already caught them for one. And also for me, the difference is I'm not constantly with my head on a swivel trying to figure out who's doing what when. That I tend to assume people are not lying to me. Yeah. Because that's another thing people have said is is oh, you're like a human lie detector. And I'm like, okay, look, our non-human lie detectors are pretty terrible. So like sometimes I can tell as a mother when my children are lying because they're terrible liars and that's good. I want them to continue to be terrible liars. But the average person that I speak with, unless, as you said, unless they give me a reason to expect it, mm -hmm. I generally assume people are telling me the truth. Yeah. And I try to find space for those words within my sense of how reality works. And it's only when there's a really jarring, like, okay, the words you just said don't fit with my understanding of how humanity works. And so now I have to think about this. But by that point, I already had decided I don't like the person. So that's fine. Well, and also, and obviously in a forensic situation, you know, I, when I go into evaluating an inmate for, you know, whether they're up for parole or, or whether it's an um, issue of whether, where they're going to spend their parole, I make sure they know, look, I want to hear everything that you have to say. And I want to also make sure that you know that I have access to all of your records. I have your C file. I have your mental health records. Um, and that's just to make sure that they know that, that you are, you're, you're, quote testimony in terms of let, telling me what's going on, telling me what you think is best for you, what kind of symptoms you're having or not having or whatever. Um, that's a very important and maybe the most important part of the pie that I'm putting together, that I'm making here. But you can, I want to make sure that you know that I would understand in a way if you lie to me about it, if you don't want to go here and, you know, and, and, and my recommendation might be that you go to a forensic hospital, for example, if you're having these symptoms or if you're doing these kind of things, I, I wouldn't hold it against you if you were not telling me the truth, but I'm not going to take what you say at face value either. I'm going to make sure that I, I'm going to talk to the custody officers. I'm going to talk to these other people because they're with you all the time or they're with you, you know, 40 hours a week. So it's much harder to, you know, sustain a, a kind of a narrative for 40 hours a week. I mean, look, I'm not, I don't have any crystal ball here. I mean, anybody could lie for an hour or two hours. It's much harder to do that when you're, you know, in a, in a, in a confined environment all the time. So, you know, I like to kind of give people the benefit of the doubt. And again, when you're talking about forensics and not social situations, make sure they know that I'm going to be also checking to see how, what, how, you know, do your records line up with what you're saying? And, it, you know, sometimes records are wrong, but I'm going to check multiple sources before I make some kind of, uh, you know, a recommendation. Were you 
or are you expected either in a courtroom setting or one-on-one -on -one to look at someone you have assessed mm -hmm. and say to them, this is what I found. This is what I think. This is what I feel. Not really. So, and I think the reason for that is that um, the potential, let me, let me back up for a second. So I've done so many different kinds of evaluations. So if you give me an example, I might be able to tell you that. So one evaluation I've done a lot of is what we call in California, offenders with a mental health disorder. So a person's up for parole, you know, nothing's going to stop this person from being released on parole. But the question is, should this person spend part of their parole in a forensic hospital or can they be released to the community? So that's the question, not that they're going to be released from prison, but where, where are they going is, is the question. So if I, and let's say if I have an exa example, and I want to make sure because this is who I work with, I don't, I don't want to give anybody the impression that most inmates are there because of mental illness, because that's not true. But there's about 35%, I think 30, 35% of inmates in California have some diagnosable mental health disorder, whether it's, it could be anxiety, depression, whatever. Um, so that's who I'm seeing in, the, in this kind of evaluation. In that kind of situation, I am specifically forbidden from saying to them at the end of the evaluation, this is what I found. Number one, oftentimes I'm still reviewing the record. So I'm, you know, I'm not going to make a determination necessarily just based on what they're telling me. Now, sometimes I will meet with somebody who is actively psychotic still, or they're delusional or whatever. And in that situation, I definitely wouldn't tell that person because number one, the person does not want to go to a forensic hospital at all. Um, because of their symptoms, which oftentimes, as you know, a lack of insight is part of that active, you know, symptom pattern. And it, all it's going to do is upset this person for me to tell them because they don't think there's anything wrong with them. And I'm, I know that they need to get some additional help before they're released in the community because their active symptoms, that's what led them to end up in prison to begin with. Um, so these are violent offenders I'm evaluating always because that's the criteria. And they're, they're violent offenders who because or part, at least partly because of their severe mental health disorder ended up in prison to begin with. So there's not a lot of benefit for anybody, including the inmate, to have that discussion with them then. Now, I've been doing some evaluations recently, which I'm really enjoying um, because it's a it's it's a different it's a mitigation evaluation which I've never done before. And it's, it's kind of lovely in a way, because my job in that situation is to basically tell this person's story and help the courts understand where this, why this happened as much as possible and make recommendations, but to tell, to, it's a very clearly defined role. You are working for the public defender. Everybody knows that your job is to tell this, this person's story in the best possible light, um, not ever denying, minimizing or whatever, to talk about the treatment they've had, um, make recommendations. If you don't think this person is ready to be released, I go to the public defender and I'll say that, you know, I don't, I think you need to wait a couple of years or this person needs more substance abuse treatment or whatever. So it's not like I'm, I'm there to blanketly, you know, say, yes, everybody should be released or open the gates. But um, it is, it's a cleaner kind of um, evaluation in a way, because that's what I'm supposed to be doing. The, the, the state of California has asked me to work with this defense attorney. I'm on part of that team. And that has been so nice because I'm seeing people now, and this is the, these evaluations are only because California passed a law a couple of years ago. 
that if you receive life without parole as a juvenile, you now have to be reevaluated to see if you can be resentenced. So that's the only reason I'm being asked to do these kinds of evaluations. So I'm seeing now inmates who are in their 40s, oftentimes, who've been in prison for 25 years and committed a horrible crime when they were 15 or 16 to see if they can, if they're eligible for parole. I never make any decision about parole, as you know, but I want to make that clear to your audience as well. But it's to say, okay, has, has this person changed in any way? And if they have in a good way or in a not good way, um, and what's the evidence of that? And what does that mean in terms of if this person's released, what kind of parole restrictions should they have? And so it's really been very, really rewarding to do that kind of work recently. One of the things that I got in the habit of doing when I had time and when it was appropriate, because I didn't always have time and it wasn't always appropriate, but if I was doing an assessment that was going to be part of the court record, because they don't know and I don't know whether I'm coming down on the side of the prosecution, the defense, or neither. Yeah. Like, we don't know that answer yet. Is that if I could, I tried to make a subsequent, like, half hour appointment with them to say, this is effectively, this is my report. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm going to say on the stand because I'm of a very strong opinion that surprises in court are terrible ideas. That, that we don't want a big surprise. I don't want to get up on the stand and be speaking about someone and say, this is the diagnosis I've come to, or this is my suggestion about where they, you know, where they would best be housed during or after incarceration, things like that, and have them stand up and scream. That's not good. Like, yeah. I want them to recognize themselves in my words, and I want them to know what I'm going to say before I ever walk in the room. That's a good point. And both of the evaluations are the kinds that we were talking about. I, I don't testify. So it's it's nice. There's not going to be a big surprise. Now, I, I do always encourage the defense attorney or the prosecutor to talk with our, or the defense attorney mainly, even if my findings when I'm court appointed are not, you know, to the liking of the client, I encourage them to talk to their client and that if there are any questions, I'm happy to answer those. And one thing I do enjoy about these recent evaluations is what I do is when I meet again, because I meet several times with, um, with, the, with the inmate is I do give them some feedback about my sense of their story. And I talk with them if there are any concerns that I have. I'll ask them about how they're going to handle this, what kind of plans they have for the, you know, for these kind of things. And so I will give them feedback sometimes on, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of positives. And a lot of them have done a lot of work to correct some of the things that kind of led them to the down the path that they were on. And um, so give them some, you know, I guess praise for the work that they've done, if they have, and most of them have. And also again, you know, have a, a very almost like a debriefing, like you're saying, to let them know, you know, here are my concerns. Here are the things I think you've done so well. How are you going to avoid this situation? What are your thoughts about this? You know, um, I saw an inmate recently who um, is hoping to get out on parole and he's involved with a woman who's got six children, you know, and they're small children. And so just talking about that with him and, you know, and just kind of saying, that's a stressful environment. You know, how are you going to handle that? And you know, and he's been taking some parenting classes, which I didn't know about. And so we just, that isn't technically, I guess, part of my job, but it's kind of what you're saying. I feel like that's, that's, that's being a psychologist is trying to help as well as evaluate. So I'm not crossing any lines. And I think the defense attorney is actually pretty appreciative when I do that. 
Um, it's not a therapy session, but it is feedback about my work with this person to date. Right. Exactly. It's not, I, I, I'm a terrible therapist myself. I, 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 I'm not patient enough. And I just, I, I, the way my brain works, I just want to move on to the next thing. I want to do the thing. I like writing and then I want to move on to the next thing. And, and that's, that's how I roll. And so, yeah, I don't, I, I don't ever want to, it, it shouldn't feel like therapy. And I, and I've told, I've also done crisis work in the emergency rooms. Uh -huh. And so in both situations, both in prisons and in the emergency rooms, I've had people say in one form or another, I, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. Would you be my therapist? And my answer is you'd hate it if I was your therapist. You would hate this. You only like it now because it's novel, because I'll call people out mm -hmm. if I think that they're BSing me or if I think that they're, if they're lying. Like, because, uh, you know, like I said, I am, I'm not a lie detector machine or person, but you get, you, you get a sense. Yeah. And I can be wrong, but I'm completely willing to look at somebody and be like, okay, um, not buying it. Yeah. You know, are you, are you wasting my time right now? Because I have 47 other people I could see today. Yeah. You know, your name just happened to came up on the list, but I can go talk to somebody else if you don't want to talk to me until next week or, you know, next year or whatever. And uh, nobody's ever talked to me like that before. Could you be my therapist? And I would be like, you would hate me. You would never come back. You only like it today because it's new and different and you're bored. Mm-hmm. And, and so there's that experience of like, this is not therapy. Trust me, therapy is work. And it's building on what you did week after week after week after week. And it's hard to be in therapy. And it's hard to be a therapist. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to do that. I just yeah. want to move on to the next thing. No, I can really relate to that. I also kind of enjoy that. And I worked on the crisis unit, as I mentioned as well. And I really felt like that was a good niche for me as well, because it's that kind of short term problem focused, you know, getting the person where they need to be, getting them the immediate help that they need, and then handing them to somebody else to do the hard work, you know, which is the longer term, the longer term stuff, you know, it's like, or we're on to the next, you know, crisis. It's like, I can completely relate to that. And it's good. I think it's good. You know, one of the nice things is, I, is I've gotten older is, you know, kind of making peace with who I am and trying to use the strengths that I have and work around the weaknesses that I have and do the best job that I can for whoever I'm seeing. Well, and there's a guy out of Texas, his name is Stephen Finn, and he's done a lot of research that effectively, he believes, I say, I speak about him in the, the present tense. He could have died 20 years ago. I don't know. But when I was going through grad school, um, I learned about him first because I, I was really grappling with all of my, you know, I was in a class of 30 because I went, I went through a PsyD program. And so all of my classmates wanted to be therapists, mm -hmm. except for like me and maybe half of another person. And that was yeah. it. And I kept like, what, what is this or whatever? And I, and I found his work and it really resonated with me because his thought was that the therapeutic slash visual quotes here curative although we we get that there's no such thing but the 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 therapeutic aspect of therapy the helpful is the the, the subjective feeling of being understood and not judged and that you can do the same thing in an assessment it's just boiled down so that instead of being stretched out over 12 to 16 weeks or whatever your insurance will authorize you to start with, you can do it in a four to eight hour session mm -hmm. broken up over a week or whatever. And then however long it takes to rate it up and, and blah, blah. And, but that it's that feeling of being understood. 
that yeah. that's a powerful and empowering experience for people. And as soon as I, I stumbled across that, I was like, oh, thank God, like, <laughs> this makes sense. And I can do this. And I felt like I felt like I have touched lives. And I don't want to change the world. I that's way too much responsibility. But when I use my my words and my brain and my talent, I want to do it for something other than, hey, look at my high score on Candy Crush or something. You know what I mean? Like, I want to feel like I've done a thing. And I do. I feel like I've touched some lives. And if I'm never able to do it again, that's okay. I think that's so true. That sense of of being heard. And also I think the sense of being valued, you know, when I first began working um, in a correctional facility, I, I've done, I don't know how many suicide risk assessments I've done in my life, but a million of them. And of course I, they come up often, the suicidal ideation and, and threats and attempts in prison for lots of different reasons. And another thing that I found that I thought was so therapeutic is it, I, I don't think I've ever met a worthless person. And I've seen inmates who had life sentences who did amazing things with other inmates, you know, in terms of whether it's mentoring new people coming in, helping them understand their case, um, you know. And, and so I, I did feel like that hopefully that that was a strength of mine is communicating because, you know, it is a hopeless feeling to feel like you're going to be in prison for the rest of your life. And some of the people that I work with were, they just were. And um, that wasn't uncommon for them to talk about that. And, you know, there's no reason to hang around because this is it. And, you know, I, I can't keep somebody from committing suicide and people do commit suicide in prison, but there's always opportunities to help other people, no matter where you are. And there, you know, there's a, there's value that everybody can contribute um, and do in amazing ways sometimes. And I was mentioning earlier that I saw that. And so the other thing I tried so hard to communicate is that you're heard, like you were saying, and you're, you are valuable no matter who you are and where you are, you can provide value, you know, to yourself and to other people. Well, and that's something that's part of my, my disclaimer at the start of every episode is, you know, this, this podcast is not safe for work, small children or houseplants, and I maintain privacy and confidentiality where I can. And then I have the suicide prevention lifeline number, and it ends with the phrase, you matter. Mm -hmm. And I started that mostly because I felt like it needed a disclaimer. I needed to be clear yeah. to people that this yeah. is for adults. Yeah. But then it needed an arc. It needed to end on not necessarily a positive or a negative, but not judgment in either direction, but it needed to end somewhere. It needed to go somewhere. And that, that phrase, you matter, wasn't really something I thought up until the first episode that I was recording. And I was like, oh, right. Hey, I need to come up with a disclaimer real quick. Yeah. And that's what I did. And I've had people tell me, listeners have told me that there are days where that's the only time they hear it all day, all week, all month. Nobody tells them they matter. I think humans don't do that to each other enough. And they don't say it to other people and they don't hear it enough. And so I've started saying it myself again at the end of episodes as well, because I'm like, look, because there are people who say like, you know, I honestly just listened to the first minute and a half of your episode. I, I listened to long enough to hear someone tell me that I matter. And then I turned off the podcatcher and went about my day. And it breaks my heart because these are people who are not in prison. These are people who society 
and capitalism say are valuable in a monetary way mm-hmm. or a productivity yeah. way. And then you look at somebody who's in prison who's been told you're throwaway, that mm-hmm. even after you're released, your record will follow you around forever. It will it will determine where you can live, who you can live with, whether you can own a gun, whether you can vote, all of these things it shapes your whole life. And so there are so many people who are just like, I just, I quit. I just quit. Why not? Mm-hmm. The answer is because you matter. Yeah. And it's a heavy one. It's a hard one. And I don't, you, as you said, you can't, you can't keep someone else alive if they don't want to be. So all you try to do is, you know, is you just try to say to them, let's work through this. Let's try, you know, and whether it works or not is, is out of my hands most of the time. Yeah. I think it always is really for the most part. I mean, we can put those temporary things in in place, whether it's putting somebody in the hospital or putting somebody in, you know, a safe unit or, or safe cell or whatever, we can do those temporary things, but ultimately we are in charge of our, you know, our ultimate fate. Um, but yeah, I think that's such an important message for people and, and, you know, not just for, not just hearing it from other people, but reminding ourselves that we matter is so important because one of the things I've realized over time is, you know, it is harder to be generous to other people. It's harder to be charitable. It's harder to be giving if you don't feel those things for yourself. It does really start from within, you know? And so sometimes it has to start from outside because you can't generate that on your own. And I think it's, you know, it's great. I'm I'm thrilled that that's your art for your show because that can't be said enough. And I think it's important to, you know, it's so hard because like I said, working, seeing the whole gamut of the criminal justice system, um, it is complicated. And I do hope that there's, I mean, there needs to be the same goals, basically. You know, we all need to work together to prevent childhood trauma. We all need to work together to encourage parenting. We all need to work together to help children who have incarcerated parents so they can learn different ways of being. We need to help people who've been in prison um, adjust better to the outside and have those skills. We need to help victims feel more powerful and not feel re-victimized by the judicial system. I mean, ultimately we have all the same goals and yet sometimes it can get so polarized in some respects, I think, even when you look at different groups who are, you know, who are, have different causes in the criminal justice system. You know, I'm hoping that there's going to be more collaboration among different groups because we are really all working toward the same goal, which is a safer, you know, more productive, happier country. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. If you're listening to this episode on the date that it drops, which is January 5th, 2023, and you're into true crime, then you know what I'm talking about. And if you're not into true crime, good for you. That's probably healthier. But it's the murder of four college students in Idaho that happened back in November. And the suspect was brought from Pennsylvania back to Idaho over the past week. I happened to hear Joni on another podcast talking about this. I've been on other podcasts talking about this. And like the conversation's done. You know, Joni, whether she listens to this or not, I can't make her. But what I can say is that Here's a digital high five across the country because there's a lot of speculation and sensationalism and voyeurism and just screechiness happening across the world right now, definitely across the the U.S., about who did it and why and what was he thinking and what is he like. And look, we know some stuff. The affidavits are out some of the extradition and then the waivers are out, that kind of thing. But ultimately, it's not just that we don't know, but that we don't know whether we will ever know what was going on inside this person's head. And we don't know for sure, by the way, that we've got the right person. I think it's pretty likely because that's the way they're talking about it, but we don't know for sure. And my initial tendency for breaking news style coverage is either to avoid it altogether or at the very least not to mention it a whole lot. I don't go on a ton of other podcasts talking about it and I don't try to add my voice to the screaming throngs of other people who have things to say through the expertise that they've gained through Twitter or whatever. But in this one, I was asked on another show to sort of talk about the prison industrial complex well before the suspect was apprehended. And then I returned to that same show. So the show is called Four, the number four, Killed for What?, And the host, Tony, was 
completely nice to me and we had some really good conversations. So I appreciate that. And I just, you know, I don't often want to, to add my voice to the screaming throngs, as I said, but I felt like somebody needs to be not the voice of reason, but at least the voice of slow the hell down. We don't know yet. We can't know yet. It's okay. And I don't remember the name of the show that I heard Joni on, but she had a similar vibe of just, here's how the system, capital system works, but we don't know yet. And I just, I feel like it's important sometimes to get that message out to the extent that we're able. The system is slow and the system is confusing and people do terrible things and sometimes we never know why. So one more thing, solidarity, high five, whatever. Joni, thank you so much for coming and talking with me. You get me. I get you. We're good. We're best friends forever or something. And please come back and play sometime. It was really great to get to know you. Thank you guys for listening. I hope that crime never touches your lives. I hope you never learn what it smells like inside a prison or how sounds echo or how dark it can get even though all the lights are on. But if you do, remember that you're still a human being and you still have a name and the people that are in those facilities all have a backstory. That doesn't excuse them. But how exactly is it that we're going to make crime decrease without understanding them? Also without getting rid of guns, but maybe that's just me. Right. Anyway, hang in there. I have some neat stuff coming up, some interesting stories, and just I have things to say. And I wouldn't have anything to say if you weren't out there listening. So thank you. You matter. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.